Oh, good morning again. It's great to be here together. I really enjoyed last night. Thank you to those who organised it. My kids will be very jealous when I go home and tell them that uh, we had a great games night and they'll be especially jealous when I tell them in a very humble, non-boasting kind of way <laughs> that Scammer won! <laughs> we are thinking about the truths to live by that are summarised for us in the Apostles' Creed. Yesterday we talked about the Lord God Almighty, the Sovereign God in an anxious world the maker of heaven and earth, the creator God in a materialistic world, and God in the flesh, the present God in a lonely world. Today we come to the heart of the Christian faith, and we're going to speak about God on the cross, the suffering God in a guilty world. I hope you got that passage from Matthew open in front of you. Uh, As is becoming our habit, we'll be spending a, a, a chunk of our time there, but also in other scriptures, because what we're trying to do in this doctrine series, this teaching series is draw together all that the Bible says, or at least (laughs) some of what the Bible says, drawing it together in a systematic kind of way. What can we say about what happened on the cross and what it means for us as guilty sinners in need of saving? So let's pray as we come to God's word. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we recognise that you are the holy God. You are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. And as we come before you this morning, we confess that we are not holy, that in ourselves we have sinned and we've become slaves to sin. And yet, Father, we thank you that in your grace, in your Son, our Lord Jesus, by his life of perfect obedience by his death on the cross, by his resurrection from the grave, you have set us free. You have called us into your kingdom. You have forgiven our sins and you have freed us from that slavery to sin in which we were by our own choice. Father, we pray this morning as we come to your word in the Gospel of Matthew that you would open our eyes to see more of your grace to us in Jesus on the cross. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Well, when my eldest daughter was two years old, she perfected the art of throwing tantrums. It went like this. She'd yell and scream at us in the kitchen or the lounge room. Something didn't go her way, and so the tantrum would begin. It would begin in the lounge room, yelling and screaming, and then it would continue down the hallway. She ran down the hallway and into the bedroom and slammed the door behind her. Uh, continued yelling and screaming for a while until she got it out of her system and then she'd re-emerge uh, and everything would be okay. <laughs> this became a bit of a pattern. Uh, it happened several times until one day when the latch on the bedroom door was set to lock automatically. She yelled and screamed in the kitchen. She ran down the hallway. She slammed the door behind her. The yelling and screaming continued all as normal in the bedroom until... Silence. I walked down the hallway. Silence. And then I heard this rattling at the door. And then the silence turned into this whimper. (laughs) Daddy! (laughs) She was trapped in the bedroom. Now, what's a father to do at that point? (laughs) 
is this little girl guilty? You bet she was. In a two-year-old kind of way, but guilty nonetheless. Was she also stuck? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. You were pleased to know I let her out. <laughs> it's not just toddlers, though, who end up guilty and stuck, is it? Think about the alcoholic husband. Is he responsible for his actions? Is he guilty of the grief that he causes his wife and his children? Yes, absolutely, no doubt about it. We've got a noise there. I might just pause until... There you go, that's stopped. <laughs> We're thinking about being guilty and stuck. I think about an alcoholic husband. Is he guilty? Is he responsible for his actions and the grief that he causes to his wife and his children? Yes, absolutely. Is he also, in another sense, a victim? Stuck? Helpless? Caught by a power that's stronger than himself? Well, yes, that's true too. What about a child who's raised in an abusive family situation? Who then becomes a perpetrator of abuse? Are they responsible for their actions? Do they need to be held to account? Are they guilty? Yes, absolutely. No doubt about it. Are they also at the same time worthy of our pity? Needing help? Needing rescue? Well, yes, that's true too. And this shouldn't surprise us because actually that's all of us. This is what Jesus teaches us in John chapter 8 where he's speaking to the Jews and he says very clearly... Everyone who sins is what? A slave of sin. Everyone who perpetrates sin is guilty of sin, but at the same time is also a slave to sin. That's all of us outside of Christ. We're guilty and we're stuck. We're both culprits and captives. We're both sinners and slaves. We're both guilty perpetrators and helpless victims who cannot save ourselves. And the good news that God has for us this morning in this passage, which takes us right to the heart of the faith with Jesus' death on the cross, is that in Christ, God has set us free from sin. By his death on the cross, God has freed us from sin's power and freed us from sin's penalty. And when Jesus comes again, he'll free us from sin's presence in our lives once and for all. Uh, those are the three points. You'll see them there on the outline. The third one will be very brief. So if we, we, we go a long time on points one and two and we don't get to three to right to the end, don't worry. Three will be <laughs> much briefer. Uh, we'll be focused again in this passage in the Gospel of Matthew, the account of Jesus' crucifixion. So I hope you've got your Bible open there. And let's begin by looking at first the way in which God gives us freedom from sin's power through the culmination of Christ's obedience. As we read that passage, the cross doesn't look like a victory, does it? When you read the passage, it looks like Jesus is stuck. He's strung up on the cross, his arms are outstretched, his wrists are nailed, his ankles are pinned down, his body is broken. Far from a moment of victory, 
this looks like an utter defeat. That's what the crowds and the Jewish leaders think. Matthew chapter 27, verse 39, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. Verse 41, so also the chief priests with the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying he saved others. He, he can't save himself. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the son of God. They taunt Jesus because they think this is the moment of his defeat. They taunt him because they think that if he really is the Son of God, he'll save himself. He'll come down from the cross. What they don't realise is that the reason he stays on the cross is precisely because he is the Son of God. What they don't realise is that this is the moment of God's victory over sin because before their very eyes... Jesus is completing the perfect obedience that we all owed to God and so showing himself to be the perfect son of God. If you ask yourself, who is the son of God in the Old Testament? This will help us get into it a little bit more deeply. What's the answer? Who's the son of God in the Old Testament? Well done. I heard them all. <laughs> Israel, David, Adam. Let's take them in order. Adam is the first son of God, made in God's image and likeness, like a, we talk about a, a son who's a, 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 the image and likeness of his father, a chip off the old block. Right? This is sonship language, as Adam is made in the image, together with Eve, in the image and likeness of God. But when Adam fails through disobedience, God calls Israel, who takes up this role as son of God. And so God declares to Pharaoh in Exodus 4.22, Israel is my firstborn son. And the prophet Hosea in Hosea 11.1 1, can say, out of Egypt I called my son, speaking about Israel, the son of God, who takes up the role that Adam failed. But then, of course, Israel also fails through sin. Israel is no better a son of God than Adam was a son of God. And so David takes up the role of son of God. And God himself says in Psalm 2.7 to David, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. You see, in the Old Testament, the son of God is the true human being. Uh, it's Adam. It's Israel. It's David. It's, it's the human being who's in covenant with God, the one through whom God is going to advance his purposes in the world and the point in Matthew is that Jesus picks up where Adam and Israel and David left off his life reflects theirs except of course with one crucial difference where they got it wrong he gets it right <laughs> I don't know a lot about carpentry but I did for a couple of years uh, when I was at uni work for my uncle who's a carpenter and uh, he, he tried to teach me. I wasn't a very good student at carpentry, but that's why it only lasted two years. He tried to teach me. One of the things I learned is that when you are starting a cut through wood, the first cut really matters. Because wherever that first cut goes in, that's where the saw's going to want to go every cut from that point onwards. And so if the first cut goes in the wrong place and you pick up the saw and then you try to cut a little bit further, the saw's going to slip back into the rut that's created by the first cut. And it, it's very hard to correct it after that. The first cut really matters. And Adam's sin cut a rut of destructive, godless, sinful living for the rest of humanity in his footsteps. 
sinful living that Israel and David also fall into and that you and me and every human being has, has followed ever since. And so Adam is a failed son of God. Israel is a failed son of God. David is a failed son of God. All of us are failed sons and daughters of God. But Jesus is a new Adam. Matthew's story opens in chapter uh, 1 with the birth of a man who has no origins in a human father. That reminds you of Adam, right? Like Adam, he comes into being by the work of God's spirit. Like Adam, he's given life directly by God. His life is a new start for humanity, as we spoke about yesterday. And soon we see this baby grow and he goes out into the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. And in Matthew chapter 4, he faces the devil who takes God's word and twists it and casts doubt on it and tempts him. And we're hearing echoes, aren't we, of Adam in the garden? And towards the end of his story, we see this same man again in a garden struggling with the call of God on his life. Will he obey? Jesus is reliving Adam's story. That's what Matthew wants us to see. He's reliving Adam's story, but he's getting it right. He rebuffs the devil's temptations. He submits himself to his father's will. Uh, On another level, Jesus is the new Israel. Matthew's story begins with a Joseph to whom God speaks through dreams. And your ears prick up. There's another Joseph, wasn't there? to whom God spoke through dreams. And your mind goes back to the end of, Exodus, end of the book of Genesis where, where Joseph uh, receives dreams. And this Joseph takes his family down into Egypt. Hang on a minute, is that Joseph in Genesis or Joseph in Matthew? Well, it's kind of both. And he goes down into Egypt and then Joseph brings his family back up out of Egypt and they come up back into the promised land And as we keep reading through Matthew, we find that Jesus passes through the waters on the way to the promised land. He's he's baptised by John in the Jordan River. And then he goes out into the wilderness. He's there for a period of 40, not years, but 40 days. And and we start to realise this is Jesus redoing Israel's story. He's reliving Israel's story, just as he relived Adam's story. Except he does it right. Because in the wilderness, the devil comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, take these stones and turn them to bread. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down from the temple, Matthew 4. If you are the son of God, worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. If you are the son of God, take the easy way. Provide for your own needs. Save yourself, not others. But Jesus does it right. He's resolute. Depart from me, Satan, he says. At another level, Jesus is the new David. At Caesarea Philippi in Matthew chapter 16, when Peter finally recognises who Jesus is, he confesses, you are the Christ, Matthew 16, 16. The long-promised son of David, the anointed one, the son of the living God. But then Jesus immediately speaks of his suffering and his death that he's going to face in Jerusalem. Peter takes him aside, you remember, and rebukes him. This must never happen to you. The Christ, the son of the living God, ought to be victorious over his enemies like David was, even more so. But Jesus has a different kind of victory in mind, doesn't he? And unlike David, who served himself and his own evil desires and who plotted the death of another from his palace in Jerusalem, you remember? Jesus knows he must serve others and die himself in their place. And so even though these words... 
come from his most trusted disciple, Peter, Jesus recognises in Peter's voice the voice of the tempter. If you are God's son, take the easy way. Provide for your own needs. Save yourself, not others. You don't need to go to the cross, Jesus. And he rebukes Peter. What does he say? Get behind me, Satan. You see, Jesus is carving out a new way of being Adam, a new way of being Israel, a new way of being David. He's making a new cut in the wood. He's carving out a a new way of being human. And so he comes to the cross. And the same temptation comes to him even there. Matthew chapter 27, verse 39, If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Verse 42, he saved others. He can't save himself. Let God deliver him now. For he said, I am the son of God. What kind of son of God is he going to be? That's the question. Like Adam, like Israel, like David, like the rest of us? Or is he going to prove himself faithful and obedient, even to the point of death? Even death on a cross. He could have saved himself, of course. He could have appealed to his father who would have sent him 12 legions of angels. Jesus says that in Matthew 26, 53. He could have saved himself, but he chose not to. Why? Precisely because he is the true son of God. And though he was fully human in every way, he's not like Adam. He's not like Israel. He's not like David or you or me in that he didn't give in to sin. And so he hangs there on the cross And as he hangs there on the cross, he's perfecting his obedience. This is the culmination of his long obedience. And so he goes to his death like no one else before him and no one since, sinless, perfect, whole and free. Utterly free from sin. Where Adam fails, he succeeds. Where Israel went wrong, he does it right. Where David disobeyed, he remains obedient. And even though the Jewish leaders and the crowds can't see it, the Gentile centurion and the soldiers with him looking on, they see it, don't they? Truly this man was the son of God, Matthew 27, 54. And here's the wonder. Here's the really good news. It's that Jesus shares his victory, his freedom over the power of sin with us with those who belong to him. There's a hint of it already back in Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus casts out the demon from a man who is blind and mute. Uh, And you might think that Jesus has power over the demon because of his divinity, because he is God the Son. But actually that's not the reason Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 12. He says, he tells this little parable, you remember it? He says, no one can enter a strong man's house and ransack his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. No one can set people free from the power of the evil one unless he first ties him up. Then he can rob his house. And Jesus has just set this guy free from the power of the evil one. He's healed him who was blind and was mute. He's just plundered Satan's house. So that raises the question, when did he tie Satan up? Well, the only other time in Matthew's Gospel up until that point in Matthew chapter 12 where Satan has been mentioned was back, you guessed it, in the wilderness where Jesus confronted Satan and refused the temptation and was obedient and so bound Satan. And so it was in the the power of that obedience that he was able to overcome Satan's hold on the demon-possessed man, you see. 
And it's the same here in our passage. After Jesus dies on the cross, as the culmination of his perfect obedience, there's freedom. Matthew 27, 52. The tombs were also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This really is a remarkable passage. Uh, It raises a bunch of questions to which I don't know the answer. (laughs) You can ask me in question time and I'll probably say I don't know. Uh, But at least this much is clear. Jesus' long obedience all the way to the point of death has broken the hold of death for these saints. They were dead because of their sin, but Jesus' death burst opens their their graves. He gives them a share in his victory. One of the jobs I had when I was at uni, after I gave up the carpentry job, <laughs> was I went for something much easier. I was an usher at the Sydney cricket ground in the Sydney football stadium. Great job. Uh, and over the, the two or three years I did that, I uh, got to know a bunch of older women who came to the Sydney Rabbitohs, the Sydney South Rabbitohs games, uh, every uh, weekend in the winter. Uh, these women were absolutely die-hard Rabbitohs fans. Uh, They'd have uh, beanies that they'd knitted uh, in in, uh, the red and the green, red and green scarves, red and green jerseys. One of them even told me she had painted her house red and green. (laughs) These are die-hard fans. Uh, And so when I was at the turnstiles and I didn't know what had happened in the game and they came out of the game after the match had finished, I, I could tell at 200 metres what the result was. Because... Either we'd lost, which was most common at that period, (laughs) or fists pumping, smiles, faces, chatter, liveliness. And when they got to the turnstiles, and I'd already know the answer, but I'd ask them the question anyway, what what happened? How'd how'd the rabbitos go? They'd never talk in the third person. They never said, oh, the rabbitos won or the rabbitos lost. That's not how you talk when you're a fan, is it? What did they say? We. We. Oh, we lost. Bad day today. Oh, we won! We won! (laughs) And I used to think to myself, I didn't say this, you did nothing. You were sitting on the sideline, (laughs) drinking a cup of tea. You were were just watching while the gladiators out on the field did all the work. And yet somehow the victory out there counted for them. The the victory of the gladiator on the field was their victory. (laughs) And that's what Jesus does for us, right? We were sitting on the sideline drinking tea. In fact, worse than that, we were dead in our sins. And he won the victory by his perfect obedience and he shares it with us. That's why in that passage I quoted at the beginning in John chapter 8 where Jesus says, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You've got to keep reading because the next thing he says is, but if the Son sets you free, you shall be free indeed. You see it? Freedom from the power of sin. Freedom to live for God like he did. And so here's the challenge for us. Will we live in that freedom? Too often we excuse our sin, don't we? We're only miserable sinners, we say. What, What else can we expect? It's really striking to me that the Bible does not describe Christians as sinners. Do an experiment when you get home this afternoon. Just open up the beginning of all of Paul's letters. Work through them one by one. To the sinners in Christ in Corinth. Is that what he says? To all the saints in Christ at Corinth. 
over and over and over again, the Bible doesn't describe Christians as sinners. It describes us as saints. Yes, we struggle with sin, but it's not who we are. Sin doesn't define our identity anymore because we've been set free from its power. We're, we're not sinners, we're saints who struggle with sin. And you see how that makes all the difference? If you think about yourself as a sinner, if you tell yourself you're a sinner, then when you sin, what are you going to do? Oh, well, that's just what I do. <laughs> you'll excuse it. You'll sweep it under the carpet. You'll ignore it. You won't deal with it. You'll persist in your sin. But if you understand who you are in Christ, that you're a saint, you've been set free from sin, when you find sin in your life, which you will, we're going to struggle with sin until Jesus comes again, what are you going to do? What's that doing there? That doesn't belong. I'm a saint. I'm a child of God. The Spirit is at work in my life. What on earth? How did that get in? What are you going to do? You're going to repent. Because that's the only Christian response to sin. It's repentance. You'll repent. You'll turn back to God. You'll renew your faith. You'll seek his forgiveness. And then you'll sin again. (laughs) But you'll know what to do with it, you see. Jesus has given us freedom from the power of sin. He's brought us out from Satan's dominion and into the kingdom, into his kingdom, where there's freedom and reconciliation with our Father. If the Son sets us free, we're free indeed. So there's the challenge for us this morning. Are we going to live in it? But of course there's more here too as well because it's not only that Jesus' death sets us free from the power of sin, Jesus' death also gives us freedom from sin's penalty uh, by the Son's substitutionary sacrifice. Matthew's account of Jesus' death is bookended by these supernatural signs. You noticed as we were reading, uh, chapter 27, 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And then verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. There's no other way to explain what's going on here except that Jesus is bearing God's righteous anger, God's wrath against sin. In the prophets, God hides the sun and shakes the earth when he comes in judgment. Uh, Amos chapter 8 verse 9, God says, On the day of my wrath I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. This is a sign of God's judgment, the darkness. Uh, In Isaiah chapter 13, verse 13, uh, the wrath of the Lord of hosts, God announces, will make the heavens tremble. In the day of my fierce anger, God says, Isaiah 13, the earth will be shaken. Uh, You see, the darkness in 2745, the earthquake in 2751, they're signs of God's judgment on sin. But it's not just these supernatural events that testify to God's fierce anger against sin that's being poured out on Jesus. Jesus says so himself. Back in chapter 23, verse 37, he speaks of himself as a mother hen. It's this beautiful image, gathering the chicks under his wings. I'm like a mother hen, Jesus says, gathering the chicks under under my wings, but you were not willing, speaking to the unbelieving Jews. The picture is of a barnyard fire where where the fire comes through and the mother hen is burned, but the chicks survive. That's me, Jesus says. I'm going to bear the wrath 
the fire of God's anger for any who will come under my wings. Or at 26, 28 at the Last Supper, Jesus speaks of the bread as a sign of his broken body and the wine as a sign of the covenant in his blood which will be poured out for many. For what? For the forgiveness of sins. Or in Gethsemane in 26, 39, Jesus speaks of his coming death in prayer to the Father as the bitter cup. The cup that Jeremiah speaks about in Jeremiah 25, the cup of God's wrath, which the nations are going to drink as they come under God's judgment. Jesus is going to drink that cup to the dregs. And here, perhaps most poignantly of all, as he dies on the cross, Jesus takes up David's lament from Psalm 22 to help us understand what's going on as he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the cry of a righteous sufferer, of the one true righteous sufferer. Because he alone of all people has never sinned. He alone of all people doesn't deserve to die. And yet here he is on the cross bearing the full force of God's fierce and righteous anger against sin. As he dies. There's a great mystery here, isn't there? And it's important that we speak carefully about this. And you'll see in the handout I've got six clarifications about what's happening on the cross. This is probably the bit where I'm going to ask you to think with me the hardest. First, as we think about what's happening on the cross, it's not that God died on the cross. The God of life cannot die. Surely that's true, isn't it? Certainly the Father did not suffer and die. The Spirit didn't suffer and die. Even God the Son, according to his divine nature, didn't die. God cannot die. He is the God of life. No, God in the person of his son through his human nature died. And so we can certainly say as a kind of shorthand that the son of God died for us. That's what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2. But we need to remember that's a shorthand for the truth that God bore in himself in his son through his human nature the death penalty that we deserve as he, as he died in our place. Second, it's not that the Trinity was somehow split apart on the cross. When Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is not some split within the Godhead. No, the Son of God, through his human nature, bearing our sin, fully experienced the full force of God's wrath against sin. The God-forsakenness is real. Jesus fully experienced the God-forsakenness that we deserve, but he experienced it within the indivisible unity of the Father and Son with the Spirit in the Godhead. It's not that the Trinity was split. It's that God took death into himself through his Son's human nature and overcame it. Third, there's no lack of faith or hope in Jesus. This is not a cry of despair. It's a cry of faith. Jesus cries out in faith, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How can I say that? Well, he's crying out from Psalm 22, verse 1. Read the rest of the psalm. Uh, and you'll see there that David, who's speaking in the psalm, ends with hope in God's deliverance. It's a lament psalm. And the lament psalms often start with this 
crying out for God, God, where are you? What's happening? But they lead us through as a habit in the Lament Psalms to a place of hope and trust and rest in God. The cry is a cry of faith that God would hear his cry and not hide his face and give him new life beyond the grave so that all the ends of the earth would praise the Lord. That's where the psalm ends. And Jesus takes the beginning of it to his lips. Fourth, it's certainly not that Jesus died for his own sin. Now, the cross is the end point of his perfect obedience. We've seen that. He suffers for sin, but it's not his sin, and therefore he must be dying in our place, bearing our guilt taking our punishment so that we can go free. Fifth, it's not that Jesus had to persuade his reluctant father to forgive us. It's not as if God the Father is only concerned with justice and God the Son is all mercy. No, the Father sent the Son to die for our sins. The Son was willingly sent and the Spirit enabled him to obey. This is like everything that God does in his work in the world including for our salvation. It's Father, Son and Spirit working together. And so you see, the cross doesn't make God love us. The cross expresses God's love for us. The children's song, Jesus Loves Me, which is an absolute classic, is, I think, maybe a little bit unhelpful here. In the second verse, how's it go? Jesus loves me, he who died heaven's gates to open wide. There's certainly a truth in that. But if that makes us think that God the Father had heaven's gates locked shut and Jesus had to persuade a reluctant father to open the gates, we're misunderstanding what's happening on the cross. So I rewrote it for our kids. (laughs) What our kids learnt, don't tell them the the old version. Uh, Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's arms flung open wide. I think that captures better what's happening on the cross. Sixth, it's not that God punished some innocent third party on the cross. It's not that Jesus was some random stranger who happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time and so copped it for our sin. It's certainly not another version of that. uh, that Some critics try to say that what happens on the cross is a kind of divine child abuse. No, it can't be that because it's not some innocent third party. It's God himself in human flesh. God himself in the person of his son in human flesh willingly suffering and dying on the cross. So how can we talk about this? (laughs) How can we declare this most wonderful of mysteries? How can we speak of the cross? I've, I've put what I think is a helpful way of saying it on the outline for you there. What's happening on the cross is that God, God himself in the person of his son through his human nature is suffering God's own righteous judgment on sin in our place. The commentator Cranfield puts it well when he says, God purposed to direct against his very own self in the person of his son the full weight of his own righteous wrath which sinners deserved. What a glorious moment. And once we've thought about it carefully like that, about what's going on on the cross, then we've got to step back a little bit and ask why. I've got a game I play with my kids whenever they uh, get a present or uh, someone gives them some privilege. It's it's not really a game, it's more a drill. (laughs) Uh, Someone shows them some kindness, gives them a present at Christmas time. I ask them, "Did, did Louise have to do that? 
Did Lucas have to give you that gift? They know the answer. No, Dad. So why did they do it, I ask? They know the answer. Because they love me, Dad. See, God did not have to forgive our sins. He was under no obligation to cancel our debt and set us free. There's no compulsion in his love. There's nothing outside of him that's forcing him to act in this way. The only compulsion is his own character because he is the Lord, the Lord, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, full of grace and mercy. It's pure grace. That's what the cross is. It's, it's unadulterated mercy. It's overflowing love. And I hope you can see what it means. Matthew shows us in his description of what happened in the temple on the day that Jesus died. Uh, Matthew 27, 51, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I think we're meant to understand that God tore the curtain. This, this is a, a miraculous act of God as he rips the curtain from top to bottom, tearing it to show that the physical temple will no longer be the place where he meets with his people. But even more than that, tearing it to show that the way is now open for sinners to enter into the most holy place. For sinners to stand in the very presence of God without fear, without shame. Because their sin has been dealt with and their guilt has been taken away. In Jesus' death, he bore God's wrath against your sin. How does Paul put it? There is therefore now no condemnation, none, for those who are in Christ Jesus. So do you doubt God's love for you? You've got to go to the cross. Are you ashamed of what you've done, even as a Christian? You've got to go to the cross. Do you think God can't forgive your sin? Then go again to the cross, because there you find God in the person of his son, bearing his own wrath against your sin so that you can go free. There you find the free love of the Father expressed in the Son and pressed home into our hearts by the Spirit. There you'll find that the Christian life is the life of a thousand new beginnings. There you find that God's mercy is new every morning. And that gives us hope, doesn't it? That when Jesus returns on the great final day, this is the third point, by the way, you'll see how brief it is, <laughs> gives us hope that when Jesus returns on the great final day, we'll be free not only from the power of sin, not only from the penalty of sin, but also finally from the presence of sin. When God comes to dwell in us, when he completes in us the work of his spirit and makes us, together with everything else, new. So what have we seen? On our own... We're stuck in sin, slaves to sin. On our own, we're guilty. We stand under God's righteous condemnation. On our own, we're like a tantruming toddler who's run down the hallway and got locked in the room. <laughs> but in Jesus, by his life of perfect obedience culminating in his death on the cross, God has walked down the hallway, God himself, and opened up the door and bent down to our level and flung open his arms and welcomed us into his fatherly embrace. He set us free to live the new life as his children. Our job, our joy, 
is to live in that freedom as we continue to repent of our sins and trust in his son until Jesus returns. Let's pray. Amazing grace, Father, you have shown us. Amazing grace, which is so sweet a sound to our ears, that you have saved wretches like us, we who were guilty in sin and stuck in our sin, whom you have forgiven and freed. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live in that freedom today and every day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.